We've been looking at 1 Corinthians, and we've been calling this letter to an ordinary church, because that's what it is. This is a fellowship of God's people, united by faith in Christ, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. That is an ordinary church. And we've seen, as we've gone through this, the Corinthians are also facing many challenges as they seek to live for Christ. They're not always getting it right. There's lots of room for improvement. And that is also an ordinary church. Paul is writing this letter to praise them in certain areas, to encourage them in certain areas, and to correct them as well. In chapter 14, he deals with the church gathering together for worship. How should we think about these times? How should we approach them? What should we expect from them? What should our priorities be when we worship together? Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 14, and we could sum up the message of that in just one word, understandable. Everything that goes on during our times of corporate worship should be as clear and plain as it can be. We don't gather so each of us can have a private party with God. We gather so that all of us together can be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. And for that to happen, Paul said, whatever goes on must be understandable. And as he made that point, Paul mentioned something that was going on in the Corinthian church. When they gathered together, it seems many of them were speaking in tongues. Apparently, the Holy Spirit had given many of them the gift of this private prayer language, and they were using it in church. But the problem was no one else could understand what they were saying. And so, without denying that tongues are a wonderful gift that God can give, Paul said that in the church, everyone must aim to use understandable words so that the rest of the church will be built up, so they'll be edified. And now this morning, as we read on in chapter 14, we find Paul has more to say on this. If you haven't turned there yet, it's page 1154 in the church Bible, or in the larger print, 1786. chapter 14, and we'll read from verse 20 to the end of the chapter, verse 40. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, 
they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is God's word. Last week, when we looked at verses 1 to 19 of this chapter, one of Paul's main points there was that when we worship together, it is not main, mainly about me and God. It's about us and God. These times are not about us having dozens of individual experiences. They're about us sharing together in one experience. That's why things need to be understandable. But now Paul adds something else to that. When we worship together, yes, it's about us and God rather than just me and God. But it's not only about us and God. Who else might it be about? Unbelievers. Now, that would include those who have some interest in Christianity but wouldn't yet call themselves followers of Jesus. And it would also include those who have very little interest as yet, but maybe they've come along because their parents brought them or a friend invited them and they didn't like to say no, or they've just come out of a vague curiosity to see what goes on. In verses 20 to 25, Paul does not say unbelievers should be our main concern when we gather for worship. Verses 1 to 19, he said these times are mainly about Christians joining in worship. 
But here he insists, these times are not only about us. We must have a concern for those who are present and are not committed to Christ. As we worship together, we hope they will become committed to Christ and join us in worshiping God. That means we have a second reason why understandability is important. It's primarily so believers will be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. And it's secondarily so unbelievers will come to the point where they too worship God. So if you're here this morning and you would class yourself as an inquirer, someone who's looking into Christianity, I don't want to talk about you as if you're not here. I want you to know we would love you to join us. Not just join us here in the building, but join us in believing worship. And as Christians, we know the most attractive thing we can do is to let you see and hear how much God means to us and how alive His Word is. We hope that you come to realize how great He is, how worthy of worship, and we hope you come to see that you need Him just as much as we do. Look how Paul explains this in verse 20. Brothers and sisters, speaking to Christians, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. We've noticed before in this letter, the Corinthians have a fairly high opinion of themselves. They consider themselves to be mature. But back in chapter 3, Paul has already challenged them about their immaturity. And he does it again here. He says, when their worship services are full of stuff that can't be understood... Well, they may imagine that shows their hyper-spirituality, but actually it's a sign of immaturity on their part. And even worse, it prevents unbelievers from becoming believers. That's the point of this quotation from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Isaiah, written hundreds of years before this. And the context in that book is Isaiah is delivering God's message to the leaders of Israel in his day. Those leaders had rejected God's word. They said it was just too simple. Trusting God's word was naive, they thought. It was childish. Instead, they were putting their hope in other things, their own ideas and their political alliances with other nations. And so God said to them, okay, from now on, I will speak to you in a different way than I have been speaking to you. From now on, I will speak to you in judgment. From now on, what you are going to hear is the foreign languages of Assyrian invaders as they overrun Israel and take you away into exile. That will be my word to you from now on. How is that relevant to the Corinthian church? 
It's relevant because it shows when people hear an incomprehensible message, it's not a good thing. It's an indication they're under God's judgment. Instead of hearing a message that wins them over, they're hearing a message that pushes them further away. In Israel's case, the other tongues that they heard led them to exile in Assyria. In the case of outsiders in Corinth, hearing tongues in church, well, that just sent them back out to continue their exile in sin and hopelessness. But it's not supposed to be that way. Jesus has come. And since he came, it's been a time for calling men and women out of exile, calling them home to God. This is a time of salvation. Hearing God's word clearly is a sign the time of exile is over. That's why the words people hear in church should be clear. People who hear God's voice become believers. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 22. Tongues are a sign of judgment for unbelievers. They condemn them to continue in their unbelief. But prophecy and other forms of clear teaching turns unbelievers into believers. So, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul is not prof uh, promising here that every unbeliever is going to react this way. What he's saying is we can't even hope for them to react this way until what we are doing and saying is clear. It's true, of course, no matter how clear we are, a visitor might still say we're all mad. Many people take offense at being told they're lost sinners who needed the Son of God to die for them. Even when the truth is told clearly, of course it can still be rejected. But Paul's point is, when we do weird things in church, we're giving people extra reason to say we're out of our mind. And so for us, if we take this to heart, it will mean not just avoiding tongues in public, it will also mean those who speak and lead will prepare. They'll work hard to say and do things plainly, explaining what's going on. Because that is not only best for building up the church, it is also best for adding to the church. It's not only about us and God. Well, if the first 25 verses of the chapter can be summed up with the word understandable, the last 15 verses can be summed up with the word order. 
Paul says, when we worship together, we worship best when there is order in our worship. And he gives three reasons for this. The first is in verses 26 to 31. Order enables the church to be built up. If that sounds familiar, it's because that was the main reason for doing things in an understandable way. It's also the main reason for doing things in an orderly way. And as we read this section again, notice how the good of the whole church is mentioned in the first and last verses of this. Verse 26, what shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Last week, we started out by saying, in this chapter, Paul is responding to what is actually going on in Corinth. This is what they're doing. And here at the start of verse 26, he describes what they're doing. Each person had a song that they wanted to sing or a message they wanted to give. And it seems they were all letting fly at the same time. Or at least they were cutting across each other. We get the impression here in the terms of the things that Paul says back to them, the impression is things were fairly chaotic in Corinth. And Paul is steering them toward a more organized situation, all with the goal of building up the church. And if Paul does not give an outright ban on tongue speaking in church, he doesn't forbid it completely, although we saw last week, he prefers that it doesn't go on in church. But notice, he does put an outright ban on tongue speaking that is not interpreted in plain words. Everything must be understandable. And Paul also severely curtails the amount of speakers. Verse 26 said they were all trying to have a go. Paul cuts it way down for them. If we assume interpreted tongues means prayers that are turned into understandable words, then he sets a limit on two or at the most three prayers. And if we take prophecy to be a message of some kind, whatever specific form that took in Corinth, Paul sets a limit at two or three of those messages. How do we apply this to our situation? Well, the fact that Paul says two or three of this and two or three of that indicates to us he's not setting out a standard order of service for every church in every place. He doesn't give any guidance about how many songs they should have or how long the whole thing should go on for. Remember, he's writing to a specific situation, to a church where everyone is trying to say their piece or sing their piece. 
And he's helping them put more order into what's going on. So it would be a mistake for us to read this and say, we must have two or three of everything. It would equally be a mistake to say, we can never have a service with more than two or three of something. Where more than two or three people pray, for example. Or when we have more than three songs. The point is, this particular church had no order in what they did. And Paul is reining them in. He's showing them how they can easily and quickly bring order to what they do. And that order is required because chaos does not build up the church. Now, Paul is certainly not calling them to a frosty formality. I know very well it's possible to organize the life out of something. I think that's why Paul doesn't get overly prescriptive here. Every church, including Corinth, is left with a fair amount of leeway as to how they order their times together. But there has to be order. And before we move on, notice one significant part of this order that Paul's talking about. Verse 29 says that when a prophet speaks, the others should weigh carefully what is said. That tells us the order Paul is talking about includes not only the format of the corporate worship, it also includes the content. It's not just about being organized, it's about telling the truth. That's also part of having order. It's not to be a case of everyone having a go, and neither is it to be a case of anything goes in terms of what is taught and what is sung. The message is to be weighed carefully. The content is to be evaluated. By who? Who's to do this? Well, in verse 29, the others, I think, has to mean the whole church. We're not to be mindless consumers of what we hear at church. We're to be like the people Paul met in Berea. We're told about them in Acts chapter 17. We're told they received Paul's message with great eagerness. So the Bereans were not nitpickers who were determined to find fault with what he said. But at the same time, we're told, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Eager for the message and weighing it carefully against the scriptures to check it was true. That's what every church is called to do. Every member of the church is called to it. And in the New Testament, certain men of the church are given special responsibility to lead the church in this. In his letter to Titus, Paul says this, an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. As it has been taught means as it has been taught by the apostles and written down in the New Testament. So the point here is that there must be order both in the format of our worship times 
in how we do things. And there must also be order in the content of our worship, what we say. All of us need to listen carefully so we can make sure what is said matches what Scripture says. And some of us will be given particular responsibility to oversee the content of what's said to make sure the order of sound doctrine is not being disregarded or overthrown. We'll come back to that point later. We need this order because it enables the church to be built up and because it reflects God's character. Look at verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. It's not hard to imagine someone in the Corinthian church raising an objection to what Paul has just said in verses 26 to 31. It's not hard to imagine someone saying, but Paul, when the Holy Spirit gives me something to say, I can't help but say it. It has to be shared. When he gives a gift, doesn't he give it to be used? I can't just sit there and be quiet. Paul's response is, of course you can. Because the God who gave you the gift is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. The idea of out-of-control worship doesn't fit with the character of our God. Now we have to be careful, this is not a call for buttoned up, emotionally constipated worship. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians who were going overboard in one direction, the direction of chaotic disorganization. It's equally wrong to go overboard in the direction of cold restraint and ceremony. We will get things right if we learn about the character of our God. He is passionate about the truth. He's passionate about purity. He's passionate about his people. He's passionate about the honor of his name. That is the picture God has given us of himself in the scriptures he inspired. He is not a detached and indifferent God. But neither is he a God of disorder. Look at his creation. Yes, it has been partially disordered by our own sin. But still, it reflects God's orderliness in a powerful way. And the deeper scientists go into it, the more order they discover. And as Christians, aren't we living for the day when we will experience God's order in all of its perfection? The word in verse 33 is peace. And behind that lies the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is not just a negative word, doesn't just mean the absence of war. It's really a positive word. 
It speaks about wholeness, security, blessedness, things being the way they should be. That is what God gives. That's what it's like to be in his presence. Peace. An all-rounded peace. And so, if our times of worship are chaotic and disorderly, if worshipers have crossed the line from being exuberant to being out of control, then we are not reflecting the character of the God who brings shalom, the God of peace. Finally, the third reason that we worship best when there is order in our worship, it shows our submission to God. And this brings us to the part of the passage that may have been flashing at you since you first read it, like a little neon sign on the page. What is up with verses 34 and 35? Well, now we get to them. And to make sense of them, we need to set them not just in the context of what we've been looking at this morning. We need the context of the whole letter. And here's why the rest of the letter is important. Back in chapter 11, Paul said this, speaking about the church's times of worship. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The part that's relevant to us at this point is not the stuff about covering or uncovering heads. The relevant bit is what Paul expects women to be doing in church. He expects them to be praying and prophesying, just like the man. So then when we come to chapter 14, verse 34, and we read this, Women should remain silent in the church as they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. When we read those verses, we have to set them alongside chapter 11. And when we do that, we have two options, really. We can either decide Paul has changed his mind since chapter 11, or we can decide Paul sees no contradiction between this and chapter 11. Now, even if we were not Christians who believe in the authority of Scripture, even then, surely we would still assume Paul saw no contradiction with chapter 11. After all, if it was a case of changing his mind since chapter 11, wouldn't he have flipped back a page and corrected it before he sent the letter? We have to approach these verses on the understanding Paul expects them to stand alongside what he said in chapter 11. And so we approach these verses knowing Paul expects women to speak in certain situations in church. We know this is not a blanket ban on women speaking. It's referring to a specific situation. And in fact, the word translated silent has been used twice before in this passage. In verse 28, 
it was translated as keep quiet, referring to those who speak in tongues. And in verse 30, it was translated as stop, referring to prophets. Three different words in English, but in the original, exactly the same word each time. And in the first two uses of the word, Paul was not telling tongue speakers and prophets they should never speak at all in church. He was telling them when they were to stop speaking. And I think verse 34 is doing the same. So what situation might Paul have in mind when women are not to speak? Well, some people have suggested that Paul maybe is warning the women in Corinth not to be distracting during the services. They're to stop chattering while others are speaking. But in verse 26, Paul implied that everybody was being distracting in the services, didn't he? They're all chattering while others are speaking. That's why he tells them not to do it. So it doesn't make sense that Paul would single out the ladies for being distracting. Well then, what else might Paul have in mind? Where might he expect the ladies in particular not to be involved? Think back to verse 29. Paul said in that verse that when someone speaks, the others should weigh carefully what is said. And we noticed that is surely the responsibility of the whole church. And we noticed in the New Testament, certain men of the church are given special responsibility to lead the church in this. The elders of the church are to oversee what is said in church. They're to make sure the order of sound doctrine is preserved in the church. Ladies, according to the New Testament, are not given responsibility for that oversight. And I think that's the most plausible explanation for what Paul means in verses 34 and 35. It's fully in line with chapter 11. There Paul assumed the ladies would be praying and prophesying in the church. But he also highlighted God's order of authority in the church. He said, the head of the woman is man. And when we looked at that passage, we saw Paul teaches the equality of men and women, and he teaches there is an order of authority in the church. The final responsibility of leadership in the church will be given to men. Not all men, but some men. Here in verse 34, he calls the ladies to be in submission to that order of authority in the church, even as they are fully involved in other ways, including apparently asking their husbands to explain themselves at home. If the husband has said something, the lady is not convinced about it. That seems to be the point of verse 35. And it's really important to see this is not just Paul's bright idea for order in the church. Chapter 11 showed it was God's intention from the very beginning. 
Paul traced it there all the way back to Genesis, to the creation of the man and woman. Here in verse 34, he simply mentions that this order comes, you'll notice, from the law. That's probably a reference to exactly the same passage at the beginning of Genesis. Order in our worship shows our submission to God. And that includes the countercultural order of authority that God set up at creation. That's why in the final verses, Paul reminds the Corinthian church, if they're feeling argumentative about any of this, they need to remember the word of God did not originate with them. They're not the only ones to have received it either. They are under its authority just like every other church. Paul calls them to submit to the authority of God's word. He writes to them with the authority given to him by the risen Jesus. What Paul says is the Lord's command. And those who have the Holy Spirit of the Lord will be glad to accept it. Those who ignore it, Paul says, will themselves be ignored on judgment day. That's the gist of verses 36 to 38. Verse 39 repeats the priority of prophecy. Be eager for it, he says, while not forbidding tongues. Understandable words always have priority. And verse 40 says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's not because Paul is a control freak. It's not because he's compulsive about being neat and tidy and regimented. No, Paul calls us to orderly worship because our worship is to be a time of building one another up. Not trying to compete and outperform one another. It's also to be a time when outsiders are drawn in, not scared away. And ultimately, we value order because it points to the character of our God. Our worship should have a flavor of the one who brings an all-round peace to his people. The one who leads us out of chaotic lives into his own wholeness and security. Rest. Now, within ordered worship, there will certainly be lots of room for exuberance. There's so much for us to celebrate. And there will be room for us to be challenged and unsettled and convicted by God's word because we need that too. Order needn't take any of that away. But it will lead us back again and again and again to the one who said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. As Christians, we can sleep in our beds 
And we can face each new day with confidence because our God is king of the universe. He has a plan for history. He has a plan for each one of our lives. His work is not random. It's not chaotic. It is ordered. It's intentional and careful, and it will lead us in the end to perfect peace in his presence. That is why we worship in an ordered way. It shows us a little bit of our God's character. It helps us move every week out of the chaos of daily life, and that's often what it is, Our worship together helps us move out of that chaos and back into his peace. That is why we order our worship. Let's respond by remembering the character of our God as we sing King of the Universe. And then our final song will remind us that God's peace comes to us through Jesus Christ.